Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here. And we are, uh, if you're a first-time guest, you picked a great day to come check us out. We are in part four of a four-part series called Remembering Rightly. It's been a series uh, on memory and not just like random memory, like uh, we're helping you be better at life in terms of trivia or whatever, but um, specifically, how do we remember suffered wrongs, things that have hurt us? And not, not things in general, not like typically like circumstantial things, uh, bet wrong place, wrong time, but specifically suffered wrongs at the hands of somebody who has hurt us. And uh, just based on like experience in common life, whatever uh, knowledge, uh, it's typically people that we've known, that we know pretty well that hurt us the most, uh, whether friends that have been kind of friends for a long time or, or, or family members or related to them or they birthed us. And so there's, an, like, there's a form of betrayal in that that makes it sting uh, even that much more. And so we said as a result, um, it would be worth our time to explore a way in which to remember rightly, remembering rightly. Um, and so last week, or two weeks, for the last two weeks, we, we've basically said this, that there's, in, in the effort to remember rightly, there's two parts of it. Um, there's uh, something that's always missing and, and something that should always be included. Something that's always missing is a distorted picture of reality. Uh, we have a tendency, our, our heart um, is, uh, is kind of broken and, and jaded towards ourselves. We're biased towards ourselves. And so whenever we remember, um, we remember how somebody has hurt us, a lot of times we add things to the picture to make things a little bit more... Um, a little bit more black and white when they were probably more gray when it benefits us and a little bit more gray than black and white when it, when it benefits us in that way. Um, and we try to make them a little bit worse and, and a little bit, you know, our situation a little bit more interesting and, and, and very much, you know, in, in, the, in the way that if everybody heard, they would have done the exact same thing that we did, right? So we, we, we distort reality in our memory to make ourselves look better. So that's, uh, if we're going to remember something rightly, we got to understand that our heart kind of leans in that direction. We got to stop that and not do that. And then we said what last week was what should be included always is a genuinely hopeful outlook, um, uh, an outlook for reconciliation, uh, an outlook that says, I really do want the best for you. That doesn't mean we have to be friends again or, or uh, have like the same relationship that was before the, the brokenness occurred. But like, I want you to not uh, do this to other people. And I, I really, I genuinely want you to be better. And I want myself to be better. And I have a hopeful outlook um, that I can get past this. Um, that uh, when Paul writes in, in, in Romans, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to be able to kind of practice that and do that. And uh, sometimes that's not uh, always what we take into remembering rightly. We want them to suffer harm. We want them to um, receive bad news from the doctor, right? Um, we want them to have uh, explosive diarrhea and all this whatever, and, and that's what we want from them. Um, and so we said the, the actual process, I think, the way of Jesus would be to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And therefore, if we're gonna take him seriously at that, it's gonna look a little bit differently. So every week we gather together and the point of us gathering together is to explore the teachings of Jesus so that we can walk and practice in the way of Jesus. And this is one of those examples for us moving forward. Today, I wanna talk about how does time factor into the equation? Um, how long should we remember something? What is all involved in that? So we're gonna talk today, if you're taking notes and writing these things down, the gift of non-remembrance. This is the, the big finale. This is, what I, this is what if I had a chance to be able to talk to you, sit down with you, and, and you kind of laid out all of the things that you'd gone through in life, the things that have shaped you up to this point, and the pains that either are in the background or you're currently still wrestling through them and trying to struggle through some of these things. And if I had my wits about me and had a chance to kind of be prepared, these would be the things that I would talk about, and I would probably finish with this idea of the gift of non-remembrance, specifically in regards to suffered wrongs. A little question for you a little quiz, a little social experiment to get us started on something. If you could choose to forget a suffered wrong, 
would you? If you could choose to forget something, would you do it? And before you say automatically, well, yeah, of course I would. I mean, I mean it feels like a, a no-brainer in that sense. Um, let, let me talk about the complexity of this. Because, by the way, I just bree- when I breezed through all that section just now, I kind of treated it as very, very simple and, and straightforward. And, and you're going, well, hey, hang on just one second. Um, listen, we spent uh, 30 minutes each time talking about all of the different areas. So if I made it feel simple, it's not. It's very incredibly complex. And if you want to go back and listen to talks, eastlaketricities.com slash talks, we'll be able to kind of walk through some of those things. And before you just brush this off as, well, that's a no-brainer, there's a complexity to this. And, and we know this if we actually think through this a little bit longer. Temporary amnesia has been a part of crap TV network storylines since like forever, right? I feel like every 12th episode of Full House featured something along the lines of temporary amnesia. Uh, for sure it showed up in Saved by the Bell. And sorry that I don't have more recent examples than those two shows. I don't watch much network television. So that's the problem. And then all of a sudden, if you remember correctly, Men in Black came out. You remember Men in Black? And I know they just had the new one come out and they tried to do it with Will, without Will Smith, which is like, oh, that's cute, but that's not going to work, just so you know. Um, and it didn't. And so therefore, I'm talking about the original one. And do you remember the device that they had? It was like some little, like, uh, it looked like a pen with like a bright light, and, and uh, I don't know if they had a name for it. I couldn't remember if they had a name for it, and I Googled it real quick, but I didn't want to spend too much time on it. So I have no idea. Uh, the light, basically, whatever. Um, a calculated amnesia device, because we've all heard of like temporary amnesia, or you, you know, got hit in the head, and, and you know, then you forget something. But in this one, this was interesting, though, because there was some sort of a thing that where they could like move it back to a certain date and a certain time, and so it wasn't just like amnesia in general. It was like, I can make you forget up to yesterday or I can make you forget up to a month ago or whatever. Um, and at that point, that brought in this like new sort of, what if you could, if you could, this is, this is the question, if you could switch it back to a certain time where you're still now 30 or 40 or however old you are, I'm not saying you go like time machine back to that, but if you could forget that kind of thing, if you forget that something could happen, a calculated amnesia advice, would you use it? Would you do it? And since we know those types of things don't really exist, this is not really a truthful social experiment. For the most part, at this point in life, we're all just trying to do the best we can to cope with the experiences that we do remember, right? There's definitely things in life that we don't remember, but it does seem like the ones that actually hurt us are a little stickier than most. And so we all have things that stick with us. In fact, there's like some sort of a spectrum or trajectory or whatever involved in this, the greater the pain, at least it seems like this, the greater the pain involved, the longer we feel compelled to remember something. So increase the severity of the wrongdoing in any response other than remembering seems unthinkable. So even asking the question, if you could forget this, would you ever forget this? On some degree, we're like, well, that'd be really nice. That'd be really convenient because I do struggle with this and I do think it affects my... Um, how I parent and how I lash out at my kids or my husband or my wife or whatever. Um, So that would kind of be nice. But then you also think, but that was so significantly detrimental to either my childhood or my teen years or whatever, to like forgive would be an atrocity in and of itself. I I don't even know if I want to not think about it. Um, And I don't know that there's a certain level of time. Like it's weird, like asking this, even this question, like is there a certain spectrum of of where it would be okay to forget something because it was minor up to this point, but then as soon as it crossed over into the major fault category, I don't want to forget it. Like, because I'm like, I'm so angry or whatever. Where is that line? What does that look like? In our judicial system, we have some hard and fast numbers. If you do such and such a crime, you get three years, five years, six years. It's all laid out in a kind of a booklet. And then a judge kind of, kind of, 
adjust in some sort of a, a ballpark number. But for the most part, if you met with a lawyer uh, in jail, they're going to have some hard and fast numbers for you. They're like, I don't know. We'll see how the dice roll. I don't know what you did, but here we go. Let's see how many years you get. That would be like, hey, this doesn't seem fair. <laughs> you know what I mean? So in life then, when it comes to these uh, suffering wrongs and how long should we suffer and are you willing to forget these things, uh, the question that we would have is, again, what are you comfortable with? Or if we had somebody come up to us and say, yeah, I'm really sorry that that happened. How long until you forget that this happened between us? And our answer a lot of times, especially if the pain is involved, is significant enough, we would say, how does never sound? How does I hold this against you as long as we both shall live? Kind of like marriage vows, but like the opposite, because I hate you. <laughs> Might there be a season? This is the question that I want to kind of have us go through. If we are truly practicing and learning to practice the way of Jesus, might there be a season to remember suffered wrongs and then when remembering has served its purposes, might there be a season in which you should hold on to things, but then after it has served its purposes, which is assuming that it does have a purpose, to let go of such memories? Might good remembering in some situations even aim at proper forgetting? Might it be something where you are called to, I know you've experienced pain, I know you're harboring um, anger, bitterness, whatever, towards somebody, I know that what they did actually genuinely hurt you. Um, could it be time to let go of something? Has it served its purpose? Have you learned all of the things that you needed to learn? And again, I am not saying, I've said this as a caveat from the very beginning of the series, restored relationship, act like it never happened and just get, you know, be foolishly back into the same things. I would never say that to you. But what I'm saying is, is it really, really ultimately beneficial to hang on to that forever as well? It becomes kind of our default mode in this. What if remembering rightly at some point meant offering up the gift of non-remembrance? Now, this shows up in scripture in a couple different ways. Uh, in the Old Testament, you've got Jeremiah the prophet who talks about um, God who, uh, who, who says through the mouthpiece of Jeremiah, I will not hold their iniquity against them. I will remember their sins against me no more, as if God could be like intentionally forgetful. Or in the Psalm, uh, it, it says, as far as the, in, the, the writer of the Psalm says, as, as far as the East is from the West, that's the distance in which the, the extreme spectrum in which God forgets our sins and refuses to hold us accountable. And we, we, when we harbor those things, like we hang on to those things. The Psalm that we opened up this series with is a prayer that we've often prayed, especially in our twenties. God, please forget all of the bad things that I've done. Don't hold those things against me. And when you think of me, think of me in light of all of the good things I've ever done, please. And amen. Cause I need that. Cause last week was rough. You know what I mean? Like we've had those instances. Here's a story I want to show, I want, I want to talk. There's probably a familiar story if you've grown up in church. If you've come to Eastlake, um, we did an entire series on this about three or four years ago. Um, you know it probably as the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus with the disciples one day. He's talking about lost things and the joy of recovering things that are lost. And he's trying to tell them and influence them toward, and he's, again, he's talking with the Pharisees in the audience as well. And, and people who have been far from God and far from the temple and far from all of the religious systems because they've been outcast in that way are now coming and liking Jesus and the Pharisees don't like it. And he's like, why would you not like people who are far from God coming to know him? And the, the essential end of the story is because they're not signing up for what they're offering, they're signing up for what Jesus is offering. So Jesus has always been more liked by people who are not 
obsessed with the religious system of the day, right? This is why we started a church for people who don't typically like church, because we're just following what we think is the footsteps of Jesus. So anyways, he teaches these stories. He does a lost coin, a lost sheep, and then he goes into this one about a lost son, a lost prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The text is going to be on the screen because I feel like we're pretty familiar with it, and I've got more things that I want to address. I'm not going to spend too long um, specifically on the text like I would normally do, uh, but if you text that notes word notes to your on your phone thing, you'll get the whole passage, or just look up look up uh, uh, Luke 15 at your own point. Jesus continued, uh, he, there was a man who had two sons. Now, again, this is a parable format. Didn't really happen. There was not actually a man who had two sons. He's teaching a fictional story with an, like an implied uh, moral involved in this sort of thing, okay? The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate, uh, which basically means you're better off dead to me than alive. I'd like my will now or my portion of the will now. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, which is actually the definition of the word prodigal. Sometimes we think that prodigal means like the returning son. Um, and it's, that's not what prodigal means. If you Google um, uh, uh, prodigal in the Webster's Dictionary, you'll find out that what it means is actually like a recklessness having been reckless in this way, having spent everything, having exhausted all of his resources and probably himself feeling a little bit exhausted. That's what prodigal means. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, which this is a symbolic thing for him. Why? Because uh, we all know the whole kosher rules and things about Jews and pork and whatever. This is now he's, he's not only touching them, he's feeding them, he's living with them. He wants to eat the food that they eat. This is, the, this is as low as you get. You think you've had a bottom of the barrel job. You know nothing about bottom of the barrel job, Right? Um, and, and this is what he's trying to say in this story. He longed to, I'm not like being aggressive towards you, right? I don't, I don't care. But anyways, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He comes up with this plan. He hatches this plan. I'll set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Again, this is all going on inside of his head. This is his plan that he's come up with. And he talks it, he talks it through. He knows exactly what he's gonna say. He imagines it. He imagines his father standing there. He knows the situation. He knows what he did to his dad. Basically, um, in, in an honor-shame society, uh, people would know that the son took off all of the things, basically shunned his father, shunned his family. You're better off dead to me than alive. Um, this would be something that the community would know. This would be, um, there's, no, like, there's no way back into this. I don't know what kind of, uh, uh, of you know, hurt, burned bridges that you've had with your family, but nothing like this, nothing in, in this extreme. And so he's, he's having to replay, if this is my only option, this is what it needs to look like. So he got up, verse uh, 20, and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, this right here is probably the best picture that we can have of a heavenly father who is infatuated and deeply in love with 
even the person who has for his entire life walked away from him, basically given him the middle finger and said, I don't want anything to do with you. So if you are not religious, never been religious, you think that God is angry with you. And if you ever came back and you don't even know why you're at church today, if you ever came back, there would be a lot of groveling, a lot of like, we'll present your case we don't know. We'll have to see if you can actually stick around here. What, are you going to show up late consistently? Or, you know, what's, what's going to be the case with all of this? Are you going to give? Are you going to serve? Are you going to, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we allow you into membership. You've been a part of churches maybe perhaps that have kind of treated you uh, in that way. And it in no way reflects the attitude of the father or the attitude of Jesus towards this. While he was still a long way off, he ran to him. And again, in an honor-shame society, old men don't run. Have you ever seen an old man run? It is not fun to look at. Do you know what I mean? My son runs funny, but my dad runs even weirder. And I'm like, dude, you're at the age, you just walk. You walk wherever you go. Um, He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. What is the gift that the father is offering his son in this story? What is he offering him? Admittance back into the family, sure. New clothes, that's what we find out. A party with all of his friends where they're gonna kill the fattened calf, which is like the big symbolic we've been saving. We're gonna, we are gonna empty our savings to throw a party to celebrate the return of this son who we thought was dead and is now alive. A signet ring, which would be identification again publicly with the family. So admittance into the family, yes, but like this is now a message to the uh, entire community that the, the, the son has been fully restored into this family. All of these things, yes, but something more. A gift, the gift of non-remembrance because reconciliation means more. Soren Kierkegaard writes about this story. This has been kind of the, uh, the highlight for me in terms of what, is it, what does non-remembrance look like? And this picture comes to mind. And he has this quote, but it is possible to relate properly how love hides a multitude of sins. He pulls in this, t- this thought from the James in the New Testament writing about how God promises to hide our sins from us or whatever. When it has been victorious over a multitude of sins, then it knows how to cover the multitude again. Then it makes everything festive for the uh, reception just as the prodigal son's father did. Then it stands with open arms and it waits for the delinquent, has forgotten everything, and brings the delinquent delinquent himself to forget everything as it again hides a multitude of sins. This son has prepared a speech. He knows he's in the wrong. He's got his path back towards some form of redemption. In no way, shape, or form did he actually think signet ring party back into the family. Hire me as one of your slaves. I don't even want to become... I I know it's unrealistic to expect to get my place back again because that's just, that bridge has been burned. Uh, I'm, I'll come back and trust me, when I come back, I'll never forget how I hosed you in the first time around. And the father welcomes the delinquent back with open arms and invites the delinquent to forget, acts as if he forgot. He's off, did he genuinely forget? Does God genuinely forget? When, when he speaks in the Old Testament of, I will forget the sins that they've caused against me. It's, is it as, and I used to think this as a kid, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we used to be taught, at least the church that I grew up in, when you confess that and when you're genuinely sorrowful, sorrowful for it, he doesn't hold it against you. And not only that, he doesn't even remember it. So when you're like, sorry for looking at that magazine, 
right? And you, and you, you, you know, you, you pray this to God, and then he's like, what magazine? And you're like, oops, I, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean anything. Never mind. I forgot. You forgot. This is great. Uh, because in that instance, who's in the position of power over this? I, I, I have a leverage of information over you. I know something that you don't know because you intentionally chose not to know it. Therefore, like, I'm kind of, like, I'm smarter than you a little bit. That's so weird because you're God, but you said you'd forget. And so therefore, and I don't think that that's how that thing works. I think that what Kierkegaard is trying to say here is he offers the delinquent a chance to experience me not holding something against you. We both know it's here, but I'm choosing not to hold it against you. He also has this, this like metaphor of a parent holding something behind their back. I'm gonna hold it behind my back and hide it. Now we both know it's there, but I'm inviting you to act like it's not there. If you've ever been a parent with a small child and, and something is uh, you know, broken or something has happened and they're in the wrong and, and you just kind of hide it behind their back and, and you're like, is everything okay? You know, and and they, they know that you know and you know that they know and it, every, there's full knowledge, but we're not gonna talk about it. We know what's going on. We know that I have every right to be like, you're grounded, you need to go to your room, you have the time out, whatever, whatever. But I'm choosing in my grace to offer you a gift of non-remembrance. That's what's taking place in this, and that's what's taking place with us in life as well. Now, I know there's a, um, a pushback, because I, I do think that um, what we're experiencing then is how do we have a divine echo uh, of this in our life? If God has offered us the gift of divine um, non-remembrance in terms of our sins, then when we do this for other people, when we do this towards those of us or to, towards those who have caused us, us suffered harm, then we are divinely echoing the grace that has been extended to us. And I know there's immediate pushback from that of essentially, if I choose to forget, I feel like I'm losing a part of who I am. Um, that's fine in like these little small things, but like there's things that this is a part of who I am. And if I choose to offer this person the gift of non-remembrance or the gift of irrelevancy, we both know it exists, but I'm treating it as irrelevant. That's basically um, the concept, I think. Um, I feel like I'm kind of letting go of a piece of myself. I, I need to be true to who I am. And in this like self-love culture that we have, it's like oftentimes we're taught like that this is you, hang on to everything that's you, this is your truth, whatever. And, and, and then and we feel like if I, if Brent, if what you're asking me to do, if this is truly the way of Jesus, it feels like I'm kind of being disingenuous to myself when I do this. And my response to that would simply be this, that you already do this in some shape, fashion. We are who we are because we don't remember all of the things that have happened to us. We have selective memory in everything in life. You can't say, I can't do this. It wouldn't be really, it wouldn't be me. It'd be a lesser form of me. It'd be a less, but you do this already. And I don't know what area it is. And, and you don't know what area it is because you forgot it. But like there's, you only remember so many things about your life. There may be pieces of your childhood that you remember more than others, and it ticks you as a parent off, doesn't it? When your, your kid's like, we didn't do anything this summer, and you're like, we went to Disneyland. I spent thousands, you know, whatever. I spent hundreds of dollars to go to Silverwood, and you're like, we didn't do anything this summer? 
go to, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, personal experience, whatever. It doesn't matter how this works. It's funny how the kids have selective memory and you wanna say, listen, you just sometimes don't remember all of the things that we did. You, we live life this way, so we could definitely still be ourselves. Could we experience ourselves as ourselves without a sense of loss? If we did not remember the wrongs committed against us, and my response would be we certainly could because I really do genuinely think we do. Many of us live happily without trying to give our memories narrative coherence. Many of us live happily without ever trying to like make this whole thing fit and deal with our identity, like a struggle with identity because this is, I've had this hurt and this pain for so long and for me to let it go feels like I'm kind of selling out a little bit and I don't know if I wanna go down that road. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. In terms of identity, we are not fundamentally the sum of our past experiences. Our memories, our experiences, and our hopes definitely matter, but they qualify rather than define who you are. You are not the sum of your experiences. We're selective in our memories on this thing. And by the way, they qualify. They do not define who you are. Here and now, therefore, therefore, um, when we say, listen, we should be willing to offer the gift of non-remembrance. After all, this has kind of been the pattern that Jesus kind of taught and is reflected over and over again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we go, I don't know if I can, I, I don't know if I can do that. It's not to say that this isn't easy. Like, I'm not standing up here going, guys, this just makes sense. Here and now, if we give the gift of non-remembrance at all, we give it only tentatively, haltingly, provisionally, and oftentimes with a great deal of pain. And I can't, and I'm not, and I'm not demanding this from you. I'm not saying do this or else I'm not sure if you're a Christian. I, I definitely would never say that. One should never demand of those who have suffered wrong that they forget and move on. Why can't you just forget and move on? It's like, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. How dare you? Who are you? This impossible advice would also be the wrong advice. The forgetting of wrongs must happen as a consequence of the gift of a new world or a new perspective on things. Now, it's interesting. Throughout church history, the early church fathers had to try and come up with this, what happens after we die with our beliefs about what we did and what was done to us and our memories of pain and suffering, that which we've caused and that which we've experienced. Where does that all go? Because it feels like when speaking of new heaven, new earth and life beyond this life, we hear that this, there will be no pain, no suffering, no tears, no, it'll be 100% Disney television all the time, right? Disney, kids Disney TV, like everything's great. Bubble gum and lollipops all day long, right? So where in the world does pain and suffering and all of those things go? Will we ever remember uh, things that we have gone through in this life beyond this life? Will there be any remembrance of the Holocaust or wars or uh, addictions that we have gone through. Will any of that kind of survive all of that? Or if it's all positive, then how do you, how do you deal with that? How do, you, how do you make sense of that kind of a reality before? And maybe that's never kept you up at night before, but it kept a couple of people up before. And here's their kind of solutions real quickly, just broadly. 
The fifth century father, church father Augustine, or St. Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, envisages the end of the city of God. He wrote a book called The City of God. A heavenly city freed from all evil and filled with all good, enjoying unfailingly the delight of eternal joys, forgetting all offenses, forgetting all punishments. In the heavenly city, the injured will, never, will neither remember offenses nor ponder punishing them any longer. And what he, he goes on to say is like in this new world, there might be a remembrance of something that took place, but you won't remember that it happened to you and you won't remember the actual pain involved in it. The way it looks is kind of like a doctor who is diagnosing the illness in one of their patients. You know the effects of chemo on their body and you're able to kind of describe it, but once you've been in that profession long enough, you have to have a very professional um, disposition towards seeing, I mean, you wanna provide personal care, but also you're seeing multiple of these things and you can't be broken every time somebody goes through something like that. It's like a disassociation with it. I know factually what it is. And I know that that's really hard. In fact, I read a book uh, a, while ago, uh, a while ago by Atul Gawande, like being mortal thing, which is fantastic about him as a doctor, experiencing the emotions of watching. Sucks, you go to your job, you watch people die all the time. Like, how do you deal with that emotionally? And he's, uh, he's like, a lot of times people are able to kind of disassociate and be like, I can see how that's affecting you. And I'm really sorry in that moment. I'm trying to be personal, but I also know I've got 30 other people and it's a really difficult thing to do. And in that, that's the kind of mindset that he says we, we will have someday towards all of the things that, that right now have been kind of a dominant thing in your life. You've never gotten over it. It's happened to you 20 years ago. And, and it's, it's been something that has been a struggle consistently. And the hope is that when we cross over into this, this new world or this whatever, it'll be there. It might be there still, according to Augustine, but it won't have that effect the same effect on us. We'll see it differently. It'll be like, oh yeah, I do. But like, that's not even that big of a deal. So that's, that's one option. The other one, Dante, he wrote the uh, Divine Comedy, the trilogy. Inferno, Dante's Inferno. You probably remember reading that maybe in high school or whatever. Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And you're like, I've never heard of Dante, but I have heard of Paradiso. That's a great festival is what I hear. Um, Different, but okay, yeah, whatever. Um, in that story, he talks about uh, in uh, Paradiso, these two rivers that exist. This is his way of making sense of, again, the problem of what do you do with these memories of bad things that have happened to you when you die? Uh, well, there's two rivers in uh, Purgatorio or in, in, in Paradise. One is the river of forgetfulness and one is the remember, river of remembering, and in these two rivers, when you go in, you, uh, the first one causes you to forget everything that has ever happened to you. Uh, and the second one is the river of remembering. You remember all the good things that you did in life. And that's kind of how we kind of then make sense of what this perhaps looked like. I'm not saying that these, either two of these options are right. In fact, I think they're kind of contradictory in and of themselves. I'm just saying that this is something that we wrestle with. How, what do we do? What, what is the process for this? And in Christianity, we do live with a blessed hope that this life is definitely temporary, that we live in a broken world, that things will happen to us based on sometimes the consequences of our actions, but oftentimes just 
broken people, broken world, bad time, bad place, um, selfish people, um, selfish dads, um, moms obsessed with the social image of mom and really kind of leaving us to do our own thing, um, all kinds of different things. And we are going through that and you will go through that and life is, is, uh, is not easy and yet we hold on to the hope that one day it will be. I mean, that's the Christian hope. They call it the blessed hope that life is beyond this life that looks a lot better than this version of it. Uh, and who gets there and what does that look like? That's beyond the scope of this series. All I'm saying is that we do live with a sense of one day we will no longer feel the need to hang on to all of these memories. They will not be such a part of our identity that like, we can't let these things go. I cannot offer up the gift of, of non-remembrance. He's a jerk. If you knew what he did to me, if you knew what happened, if you knew, if you knew, if you knew, if you knew, and we have all these reasons why we can't not get it. And I'm, I'm telling you again, I would never prescribe this to be like, you gotta do this or else I just, I'm not sure about your salvation. All I'm saying is that eventually we get to this spot where it feels like no matter what kind of what religion, you know, Christian arm of Christianity you're coming from, um, those two things cannot coexist. A place of eternal bliss and then also carefully protecting our pains and our scars and our hurts. So if we're gonna end up there eventually, having forgotten, why not then be an early embracer? Kierkegaard would go on and say something like this, if there's something that you wanna forget, then try to find something else to remember and then you will certainly succeed. In the negative uh, expression of this, uh, you remember when your older brother or maybe your dad would say, oh, your arm hurts? Let me step on your toe. Now does your arm hurt anymore or does your toe hurt more? I don't even feel my arm anymore because my toe hurts more, right? That's the negative version of it. Uh, but we've all seen the positive version of it. I'm going through something uh, I, that I don't want to think about anymore. So I uh, turn on the TV and I get lost in some sort of a, an alternate world, uh, a, a show that kind of like isn't just entertaining, but it like, you know, it engrosses me mentally and therefore I can kind of disentangle myself from the stresses of today. So we know how that works. We know how the process works. And he would say, if you want to forget something uh, involved in the, the pain of suffered wrongs, uh, then perhaps the way to forget wrong endured is to remember Christ every day and in every undertaking. With memory zeroed in on Christ, we forget everything that ought to be forgotten, sort of like an absent-minded person. The recommendation on his part would be, if you're really hurt in that way, um, why not then focus it on somebody who shoulders the burden of that, who made a statement for us a long time ago, shouldering the burden of sin through his death on the cross, who offers us an extension of his grace in this and then invites us to be a divine echo for the world. We take this journey partially and provisionally here and now when we forgive and reconcile and on rare occasions release the memory of wrong suffered. We will undertake it once again definitively and finally at the threshold of the world to come. That is my concluding idea or thought on this series. Listen, there are things we can do in the here and now. And ultimately, I want to invite you to offer up potentially the gift of non-remembrance. Once things have served their purpose, 
here's the gift of non-remembrance. We both know it happened, but I'm gonna act as if it didn't. Now, that doesn't mean we're back in my relationship. It just means that I really genuinely do hope that you grow into a better person that would not do this to other people, and I'm gonna grow as a result. I'm looking hopefully upon myself. I'm not holding this and harboring this and making this define me. It's not part of my identity. I'm not the sum of my experiences. I am what God tells me that I am. My identity is wrapped up not in what you've done to me or a product of things, but in who I was created to be. Now, those things are, they speak into this. They, they, uh, they provide substance towards this, but they do not define me. And the reason, the only reason I'm able to do any of this is because one, it's been done for me and I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm craving a world one day where I can genuinely uh, get past this, where I can genuinely focus not on what has been done to me um, and not what I've done to other people, by the way, too. This is not just the victim. This is also, I'm the perpetrator oftentimes, too. Uh, a world that is pure, that a world that is not broken, a world that is ultimately a heavenly sort of experience. So, uh, we are going to receive communion. We do this at the end of every series, and I just thought that this would be incredibly appropriate in light of um, the topic for today, because communion has always had sort of a uh, past outlook. Uh, we remember that uh, Christ, and I'm going to invite the band back up to come and play one last song too. Um, you know, it's always had a past sort of outlook. Jesus spent one last meal with his disciples and said, do this in remembrance of me, so we remember his death on the cross. We do this together, so as like a sort of common current outlook. We, we do it as a community. We do it not just with Eastlake people, but people around the world, churches around the world who believe and do church a little bit differently, but that's fine. Um, we receive communion together. And then, uh, and then finally, it also has a forward future looking outlook um, that uh, when scripture talks about the blessed hope and what comes beyond this life, oftentimes it says that food is involved, which should come as no surprise for us. When you think of the holidays, what do you think of? Time spent with family and way too much food. Food kind of equals happiness. Some for us more than others. That's fine. Um, and I know that I'm not feeding you today with a piece of bread and juice, okay? Um, but it's like this symbolic kind of forward-looking thing that when we do this, we are also living with kind of an end in mind. I think the Christians who do it best, the way, the, the people who kind of we respect the most in life have always been fixed on a future more than just the present and keeping their head above water here. They have an outlook of when it comes to their finances, when it comes to their family, when it comes to how they parent, when it comes to how they do life and the decisions that they make in life. It has a kind of futuristic, they have their eyes here while they're kind of living out their life here, right? Uh, and it applies in the area of forgiveness as well. So, we received this communion together um, to also kind of reinforce that kind of teaching in our minds. And it has a very tacit form of knowledge because we were participating in that. So the band's gonna lead us in one last song at the end. You're welcome at any point to slip out and make your way to one of these two stations. We're gonna have bread and wine on this side. We're gonna have gluten-free bread and juice on this side based on age or dietary restrictions. Choose carefully there. Um, anyone's invited, but no obligation, obviously. Uh, the band will play one last song. I will invite you to stand in a second. And if you don't wanna come down, you can just take the time to reflect on what you've heard and kind of how this relates to uh, your life personally, uh, and then make your way back to your seat. I'll come up at the very end, do a kind of a formal dismissal. But would you stand as we close in prayer? Father, um, never would I have said at the beginning of this series that this is easy. 
In fact, I feel like this should have probably come like on the note sheets with some sort of a caution, much like you'd see on like a pack of cigarettes. Like, hey, this is going to, this might be a little painful. Um, or probably more like the uh, cautionary descriptions on like this life-saving medicine, that there are going to be some side effects that the, it's going to hurt in the short term, that it's going to be awkward and you're going to feel like I'm kind of letting go. If I offer the gift of non-remembrance, like what am I saying about what she did or what he did or am I letting him off the hook or am I betraying me at the core of my identity or whatever? This is not going to be easy stuff. We get that. Um, but sometimes the medicine that hurts us in the short term is beneficial for us in the long term. And we apologize for those times in our life where we have thought too close-minded or too short-term about how we do life. Let us be the type of person who listens to your teachings about the way of doing life and is not turned off by a long approach to it um, in whatever area, but specifically in terms of this series in the area of forgiveness. Help us to be the type of people who may one day Maybe just hopefully, maybe, maybe help us to get there. Maybe we're not there yet today, and even, even after today, we're like, I'm still not there. But um, God, help us to take steps towards a spot where we could possibly be willing to offer up, offer up a gift of non-remembrance to those who have caused us harm. Thank you for your grace in our own personal lives, uh, for doing this for us. May we be a divine echo in the world, full of people that you love. Give us the wisdom to what this looks like in our life. The courage to act on it in your name. Amen.